Good morning and welcome to Solutions Live Business Edition. I'm your host, Chickie Fitzgerald, coming to you from Tampa, Florida. Solutions Live provides practical advice from authors and experts on a wide range of topics for professionals to help you leave your legacy. Well, it is Tuesday, May 12th, and we are indeed coming to you from sunny Tampa, Florida, not an unusual occurrence in May. Our sponsor today is Transition Solutions, a radio show that is done specifically for those of you who are either unemployed, underemployed, afraid you might not be employed, uh, or thinking about leaving corporate America. So we will be announcing our show lineup for that uh, later today. Our guests this morning, uh, we will begin at 10 a.m. on our show about innovation with Gerald Sindel, the author of The Genius Machine. I will come back to him in just a few minutes. Our 10.30 a.m. show, as always, is on leadership. And our guest this morning is Al Weatherhead, the co-author of The Power of Adversity. And we certainly know there's a lot of adversity to go around these days. So looking forward to seeing how we can leverage that. At 11 a.m., we will have our show on growth. Our guest this morning will be Diane Crampton. And she is the author of a book called Working Together to talk about the power of collaboration. At 11.30, our show on corporate escape artists will be featuring our guest, Sabina Ptason of the Red Branch uh, PR firm. And as always, my co-host on that show, Pamela Skillings, the author of Escape from Corporate America. Let me get our first guest on the air, and we'll just jump right in and start talking about innovation. Good morning, Gerald. How are you? Great, Chicky. How are you this morning? I'm doing terrific. Thank you Good. for getting up so early in California. <laughs> It's always, um, well, I'm sitting here looking at the bay, and the sun is coming up, and it looks like a nice non, non-foggy non day in San Francisco. Oh, that's terrific. Well, uh, we both live in a place called the Bay Area. Oh, really? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh-huh. I live in Tampa Bay, and uh, it's funny because when we first moved here, uh, you know, people talked about the Bay Area, and my husband, who's from California, kept saying, wait a minute. What are you <laughs> We're the Bay. About? We're the Bay, yeah. <laughs> here, anyway. they call it, here they call it the Barrier. I get it. And and you live in Tiburon, which uh, overlooks right. the area by uh, Sausalito? Right. We're the next little town around the bay after Sausalito. Got it. Got it. My husband and I have done a, a lot of trips to Napa Valley, so we uh, we pass through there every time we go. Great. All right. Well, terrific. You know, what I'd like to focus on uh, this morning, I mean, first I'd like to hear a little bit about your book, but I mean, clearly right now the country and, and really the whole world seems to be caught up in the financial crisis. And, you know, we are talking this morning about innovation. And as I understand it, that, that really is the focus of your book, The Genius Machine. So, so can, the, can the information in your book help people deal with the crisis, and, and can it really help our policymakers make better decisions about how to get us out of this mess? Yes, it's really about the, making quality decisions on a consistent and reliable basis. Uh, it turns out, I mean, I, when I began to write the book, I thought surely other people have written books about how to think. But it turns out that very few people uh, over the years have tried to capture a system for thinking things through so that when you're finished in the process, whether you're working by yourself or in a group, you have real comfort that you've done the best possible thinking you could do. 
and there's this, there are no other systems out there. So this is a system that I derived over the last 20, 30 years, working mostly with authors and business leaders who are trying to develop a methodology or try to understand what they know. I'm a Got business it. book consultant, so I've, I've result, you know, this work has resulted wow. in lots and lots so, of books. So that is what Thought Leaders International uh, does. Yes, we help people with something important to say, be heard. Oh, what a great <laughs> business. Now, have, have you always been an entrepreneur? Yes, I was a I was a filmmaker when I was a young person. My first fifteen years were in Hollywood as a director and production manager and producer and editor, uh-huh. and then I began to get involved in developing books that could be movies. And I moved into publishing and ended up uh, running a couple publishing companies. Very, very interesting. Well, uh, as you know, on this show we we interview primarily authors, uh, sometimes just experts on a particular topic, but. Uh, I am attracted to folks who are able to articulate uh, their thought process in a book. So um, very, very impressed that you have chosen that uh, as your life's work. So tell me what the story is behind the Genius Machine title. The book was originally called How to Think, How to Write, and I couldn't sell that book. No one wanted to know the, no one wanted to know the how to write part, even though I'm an authority on it. So we narrowed it down to how to think. <laughs> which seemed kind of outrageous, but then um, I, Jeffrey Fox is a very well-known writer. I uh, asked him for a quote about the book, and he said, well, Sindel has given us what he does for people. I call it the genius machine. And everyone liked that title, so we, we made it the title of the book. <laughs> That's so great. Now, is this your first? Oh, no, you said you had written other books uh, earlier No, it's, on... it's my first book. Ah. I've put 75 million books in the print for people. This oh, is my wow. first book. Wow, well, congratulations. Did you always know that you had it in you? <laughs> I was told I did, and I've told others enough times, so I finally had to do it. <laughs> it was it, it was the point I couldn't any longer say to my clients, you really have to write a book, here's how you do it. It'll change your career. I, mean, I simply had to do it. Right, right. Well, I wrote my first book in 2000, but it was very, very specific toward my industry, so it ended up being more... Uh, uh, an industry tome, you know, telling them how to do certain things within my own industry. And, and fortunately, the book sold for $995, so wow. I didn't have to sell a lot of them. It's the best kind <laughs> but, of book. The, the great thing about doing a book, as I tell my clients, is it just changes your, it changes your feelings about yourself as well as your stature in the industry. Oh, that is so true, because when I wrote my first book, uh, I remember I was charging $800 a day for my consulting services. Right. And, I mean, I thought that was a lot of money, you know, coming out of corporate America and, you know, doing the math of, you know, what I could get if I worked X number of days per month. But uh, when I was approached to write my first book, you know, I thought I was so smart in negotiating, you know, the deal with my publisher. And I had heard that people, you know, made 15% uh, on their books. And I I negotiated 25, and I thought that was great until I realized how much work it was (laughs) to actually write the book. And my first book took me nine months to write. And uh, my second, third, and fourth books I did in a four-month period uh, just a year later. Wow. And – now I have it down. So uh, after four months of interviewing authors, it's time for my first business book. Actually, I've got a, a book coming out next month, but it, it, I'm you know just a chapter in a compilation book. It's called uh, uh, Bootstrap Business. 
And I am a, a master of bootstrapping business, so uh, I figured that was a good book to have as my first business book. The timing is great for that, for a book like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let, let's circle back to the genius machine. And, okay. you know, I mean, obviously people have been thinking for thousands of years. And, and why do we suddenly need a book to put a framework around that? You know, we don't really need it, except that most of the, of the thinking that goes on, when you ask people, put people into the group and say, solve this problem or come up with something brilliant, they, the first thing they'll do is develop the process, because there is no ready-to-go, off-the-shelf process for brilliant thinking. So I think this book will fill that gap for a lot of people, and, and based on the reactions over the last few weeks that the book has been out, it seems to be working that way. Um, it gives people a lot of comfort that they know if they go through all these steps, the 11 steps of the process, that they will have done the best job they could, and they'll end up with brilliant thinking. The, the other really interesting thing about how the book is working is that people say after reading the book and using it, they begin to internalize the process, so the quality of their thinking improves. So who's the audience for the book? Is it just writers and, and business people? No, it's for anybody doing scientific research, uh, any smart young person doing a, um, a serious paper in high school. It, it covers the entire gamut of people trying to think through something. So hopefully it's for everyone. I, I wrote it for myself when I was in high school. I remembered who I was then and what I was trying to think about and do. Mm. And I wrote it for people all the way up to um, you know, senior leaders. Interesting. I've been doing a lot of work with, with uh, younger kids and trying to get them focused on how to think entrepreneurially uh, versus just you know going through the normal uh, learning that's laid out for them. I've got I've got grade school children, mm -hmm. and last Friday we went to something called uh, Enterprise Village, and this was uh, the culmination of a six-week program that uh, the kids had been put through to do everything from learning how to write checks to filling out a job application, uh, and, and just all of the things that you do uh, primarily as an entrepreneur, but also as an employee. And it, it was really interesting that uh, they actually took the kids to this environment where. I think must have been about 20 companies and, and everything from the art museum to Bank of America and Verizon and and uh, you know different stores, Home Shopping Network um, had set up little individual businesses. And you know the interesting thing was they had taught the kids the mechanics, but not necessarily to think about what do you do when things go wrong. <laughs> so I'm assuming that that part of this process for brilliance is anticipating. Uh, risks and and the things that that can go wrong, so that you're able to bounce back rather than you know crater when you get to step six and a half. I guess. Well, well that's right. There, there are a number of steps that focus on possible consequences and and trying mm -hmm. to explain to people that you can never know all the possible unintended consequences of what you're doing, right. but that they're going to be there. And even though we can't know them all, we can we still have to go forward. Otherwise, we would never move. But we still have to understand that we're never going to have guessed everything that can happen. And we have to constantly be on the lookout for unintended consequences and deal with them as quickly as possible. Right. So it's, it is very much a part of it. Uh, then another part of the book is understanding that everything you think about, you've got to find the right tests to see whether or not what you're doing is actually valid or not. And you have to find the tests that prove that you're wrong. It's as important as finding the tests that prove you're right. Well, and as an entrepreneur, I mean, I think that we naturally, as we look back and evaluate our last venture, and I, I talk about my last venture as my spectacular failure, 
<laughs> because, you know, I, I raised $7 million, which while you might say, oh, wow, that's great, you know, the owl part of that uh, is actually that we needed 10. And so raising seven uh, wasn't enough to get the business all the way through. But the good news is $7 million was enough to build the technology. And so now we sit with, you know, the technology asset and then just having to look back at uh, what we didn't do right on the business front and the business model and, you know, ha- having to go back and retool. But I certainly could have used the Genius Machine about <laughs> two and a half years ago. Well, I, I hope it would have helped. One of the things the Genius Machine is about is understanding that there are three identities at play when we, when we create something. And if we align the three identities, at least we'll be headed in the right direction. And the, the first one that we have to understand is ourselves. We have to understand what it is we're trying to do in the world, what our authentic self wants to achieve. And that becomes the guide for measuring everything else that we do. And mm-hmm. that, that can go for a group working as well. So first we need to know who we are so that if we're sex successful in the thing we're trying to do, is it the success we want? That's one of the first tests. Mm-hmm. Another identity is the thing we're creating. So if you're creating a travel business, for instance, is it a business that expresses your values? So if you're successful in creating that, that thing, is it, is it an authentic expression of you and where you want to go with your life and the contribution you want to make to the world? Right. And the third thing you've got to think about and think about the identity of is your user, the, your buyer, your customer, your end user, what their needs are. And if we're fulfilling them in a way that also enhances what they want to do with their lives. And when right. we get these three things aligned and keep them aligned, we're likely to have the success we want. Well, that that's very interesting. So what kind of problems won't this book help us solve? <laughs> I, I think it's a good question. I don't really know. Um, it probably it's meant to dissuade people from doing things that they would end up not having wanted to do. That certainly is part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's constant checks on whether we're going where we want to go. And I encourage people to abandon projects if they find out, no matter how far along they are, if they're not going to do something in the world that reflects what they're trying to achieve, they should quit. The right. book, the book in the in the wrong person's hands could probably, you know, have people be very successful at doing something not very good. Right. That would be an unintended consequence. Right, right. Now I know the book is is relatively new. Have you gotten any feedback, or do you have examples of how people have actually used this process? I got a great letter. Um, the book has been out two weeks officially. Pub date was May 1st, so it's going on two weeks. Mm-hmm. So a consultant wrote me from an airplane. Uh, she had just returned. She would gotten the book and got on the airplane and was driving through Oklahoma and had gotten through three or four chapters, and she had what she described as an epiphany moment where she suddenly realized that a project they'd been working on for a year, the reason it had never come together was it didn't reflect her values. And she restructured the project talked to all our team members. By the time she got on the plane and wrote me, they'd all gotten incredibly excited about what they were doing. So she said, you have no idea of the effect you can have on people, even at a great distance. So that's a typical response I've had to the book. Huh. Another, another consultant who's a very senior person in, the, um, in Texas wrote me, and he said, I'd spoiled his weekend. <laughs> he said he was going to go fishing, but unfortunately my book arrived. <laughs> Oh, how funny. So he couldn't put it down. Couldn't put it down. It's a little book. It's only 136 pages plus some other materials. It's a very small book. Huh. So uh, that that actually is is very appealing to have a quick read that's also 
uh, intensely practical. So yes, you could you could fit it into your purse and take it on an airplane. Sounds great. I am yep. I am actually blessed to finally be at a place in my life where I am not doing a lot of traveling. So I will curl up in my chair out uh, overlooking the marina. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. Absolutely. I can't wait to get it. Um, so, so as I understand it, one of the things that you define in your book is, is thinking um, or the process of thinking as actually making new distinctions. And, and so is this about separating the conventional wisdom and the conventional process of thinking, or, or is it about you know, taking a new tact altogether? It, it is, uh, really is about finding what you're really seeing. Uh, most people discount their own uh, perception of things. So the first, the first part of the book, the very first chapter, makes this sort of bald-faced statement that thinking is about making distinctions. And, and we notice that no two people can do the same thing nor see the same thing. Everyone is completely different. So when we see, see things, we can be assured that those are our distinctions. Certainly the more closely we look at something and what we perceive, we have to trust those things and be able to explain to others what it is we're perceiving. Um, I, I sort of put it in the context of, of the creation of the world. You know, in the, in the biblical story of the world, the world was one big void. It was all one thing. And then little by little there was separation of light and darkness, and land was separated from the sea, and then animals began to be divided up and so on. The process of creation continues with human beings making ever finer distinctions. So even the kind of music we wrote in the 15th century, which only had five tones and no rhythms, has become much endlessly more complex. Every century finds music incredibly more complex, and science is more complex. And every single day in technology, things are vastly more complex. Those, that's the continued work of making new distinctions. Every scientist looking at a cell and seeing something new for the first time is making a new distinction. So we're part of that. So we have to kind of accept it, that that's the nature of what thinking is about, is constantly seeing what's new and then refining it and making it useful for people. But I would uh, imagine that the corollary to that is that you are wrapping yourself around uh, the process of thinking based on your experience and your orientations and how people have reacted to you in the past when you've done certain things. So it's not an isolated uh, process. So how do you unwrap, how do you unthink the things that have been destructive in, in your thinking process in the past? That's a that's a great question. The destructive things I don't I'm not so sure about, but it's more of a psychological issue. It's really important to look at what we think are our big influences. Um, when I was starting this book, I, I assumed for some reason I was just continuing the work of William Zinzer. Do you remember the book called On Unri- uh, Writing Well? Did you have that no, book when you're? No. It's a, it's it's it was Strunk and White was the first big book about how to write. Strunk and White's book on uh, called the on. It's called the Manual of Style. And the next book was Zinzer's book, On Writing Well. Those two books have influenced a lot of writers over the last 50 years. When, when I started my book, I remembered a book in Zinzer's book which said, it's impossible to write a clear English sentence unless you can think clearly. And I, I thought he went on to explain what clear thinking was. But when I went back to his book, when I started mine, it turned out he never talked about what clear thinking was. So being able to see that I was building on where he left off, I knew where my territory was. Right. So it is worthwhile going back to our influences and seeing where we're departing from what we thought we were still building on. 
And and so why 11 steps? And, and is it necessary to go through them sequentially, or is this something that you, you can just visit kind of in a, a circular fashion as they are appropriate to whatever issue you're trying to resolve? You can absolutely use them as you need them. Uh, once you've gone through them in any form, they'll be there at your fingertips. Uh, it's sort of organized and it, along the way someone might think about these things, but, I, but they hardly reflect the way I typically work with any of my clients. Um, some of them are very, very difficult. I've given the book to some of my clients who've been through the process, and they say they're still stuck on some of the steps. One of the toughest ones is the, is the 11th step, which is advocacy hooks. And advocacy hooks is, is, where the, is, is the work of finding the language and the expressions and the stories that communicate what it is we've created to explain the value of it. This is not like an elevator pitch. This is something much deeper. This is really explaining to people in a way they cannot forget uh, what it is that you brought of value. And advocacy mm -hmm. is really tough. And it's something we do throughout our work when we're doing testing or talking to people or developing first stages of something. We're always looking for little success stories and collecting them, and they become part of our advocacy hooks. So it's a thread that runs through everything. Hmm, very interesting. We uh, we actually interviewed, I believe it was uh, two weeks ago, uh, a woman who wrote a book called Pop, and and she talked about how when people do try to craft uh, that elevator pitch, that if you are saying your pitch and the person you're talking to is either furrowing their eyebrows or raising them, you know, that there is something that you have not been clear enough about. And, uh, you know, worse, if, if their eyebrows don't move at all, you know, you have <laughs> totally failed in that. So uh, I'll have to go back and, and talk to her about your, your advocacy hooks. I think that that is a, really a great way uh, to, to look at it. But, you know, her her premise was that you have to – turn the statement of who you are and what you're doing into a question that elicits free information from other people and that you don't explain what it is you do. You ask them, you know, how what you are doing is relevant to their life and, you know, kind of linking into that, which is that advocacy hook. So uh -huh. Linking, not lecturing. Well, a question is one rhetorical approach. I mean, one of the examples I give is Louis Pasteur when he invented his first inoculation for smallpox. Uh, he wanted to use it on himself so he then could have a strong advocacy story. That would be an unforgettable story. <laughs> really? And the, the story of what they did finally, someone got bitten by one of their dogs or something and that had to be inoculated, and that's the story that introduced smallpox vaccines. So it's, uh, if there's an incredible story about the success of something, then you're in business. One of the things I also talk about is you cannot delegate that the, the creator's of something new, of a great innovation, cannot delegate the introduction of that innovation to others. Mm -hmm. They have to take the responsibility for framing the discussion and the explanation of what it is. They have to do it themselves. Absolutely, and I'll tell you what, that, that is my number one lesson I learned over the last three years because in, in my business uh, where I raised the money and built technology to completely reshape not only uh, the travel industry but also mapping and navigation, uh, we ended up at the urging of our investment bankers of hiring an outside management team. And mm -hmm. they they had me totally convinced that I wasn't the person, you know, to take this forward. 
And consequently, I did have to delegate telling the story to potential investors. And, and I mean, you can guess what happened. We never raised the money. Never got and the right language together. I, I was actually, you know, uh, kept out of the room uh, because they felt I was going to be too passionate about the new idea. <laughs> so, you know, here, here's the conundrum. And, and again, you know, the next time around, I'm not going to let that happen. But, uh, you know, I, I think that this whole idea of getting an advocate for your ideas is, is really a fascinating one. And I, I do a lot of work in social media right now. And I'm working with a group um, that actually went from about 500 people and narrowed it down to 50 because they thought that a, a group of 50 advocates was actually going to be much more powerful and much more committed than, you know, a group of, of 300 or more. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a fascinating study, and we're actually doing some things to, you know, to test that idea but I'm I'm anxious to read what you have to say about advocacy, um, you know, of your ideas, and uh, you know, really getting people on board with with what your thinking is, because obviously, if you can't do that, you've 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 failed, because thinking has to be followed by communication, right? Yes, I mean, in all the book development work that I've done over the years, it's time and again you see a wonderful book that fails to get out there and and have the effect that it could have had and should have had in the world. So the, the failure at the very end, the failure for the book to be properly advocated, for for the ideas to be diffused successfully in the world is a great frustration. It just makes me crazy. So the process of thinking about how we're going to get this book to successfully connect with people, or how we're going to get our invention to successfully work with a world that needs it, begins at the very beginning. We're always looking at how are we going to introduce this thing? How are people going to perceive it? Right. It starts, it starts with that challenge front and center. Well, and, and um, how do you deal or, or do you deal with the issue of timing? Because, you know, quite often those people who do have brilliant uh, ideas um, end up being called ahead of their time or ahead of the curve. Or just behind. <laughs> no one, I mean, it's, it's so rare for someone to say, oh, your timing is so perfect. Generally, it's like, oh, we did a book like that. Or, gee, someone else is doing something so much like that, but it didn't work. So... One of the things we have to do is constantly be aware and calibrate as we're developing. We're, we're always working in a changing environment. The world is changing. We cannot just hunker down, close the doors, and keep developing. We've got to constantly look around and benchmark ourselves against whatever the state of the art is out there. And we have to be aware of it. Otherwise, we're going to, we will be out of sync with what we're trying to do. So it's part of our calibration is, is paying attention to the environment. So how will you measure success of the book? Is it purely in, in book sales? Oh, I have a couple of things I'd like to have happen. I'd like someone to call me up from somewhere around the other side of the world and say thank you. That really helped. Mm. Or send me a note. That's, that for me is success. Is that the, the book begins to work for people. That the knowledge can be transferred from me to others. That, well, and that's, that's, you know, that's basically what this show is all about is providing people with a way to actually leave a legacy from what they've done and and to focus on what it is that generates legacy. I, I love the idea of, of legacy. I love the idea of legacy as a driver. Um, I've, I have four sons. One of them is a, is a very active author, and he was a terrible high school student. And one day at 19 or 20, he woke up and he said, what am I going to leave behind? And he was mm. driven 
by the notion of legacy. It completely changed his life. Wow, I love that, particularly at that age. But, you know, I mean, you see the difference of what happens when somebody comes out and they decide that, you know, book sales is going to be the measure. I mean, for me, when I wrote my first book, as I said, I was making $800 uh, an hour, uh, I'm sorry, a day when, when I first came out. And then by the time I had written my fourth book, I was making six grand a day. Mm-hmm. And and so I was able to translate, you know, it didn't matter how many books I had sold. I actually realized what I knew and could actually attach a price tag to it that, that was meaningful. Sure. And, um, you know, but the real importance is, you know, could anybody read that and transform their business? And and that wasn't my measure at the time, but I can tell you in my next book it absolutely will. And and now that I have found a brilliant coach uh, for my next book, <laughs> I won't have to look any further. Well, you'll have to let me know how it works for you. Well, uh, you know, it, it's something I'm going to be taking uh, a bit of the summer off so that I can go back and reflect on, uh, you know, the last five months I've done 100 interviews of just amazing authors and experts. Wow. So I am uh, looking forward to try, trying to extract some of, some of that out and, and flesh out some of my own thoughts. Uh, this is for the bootstrap book or is this for your, the no, other book? No, no, this is for my next book. Which is going to be called? Um, haven't got a title yet. But, okay, working uh, working title. Working title. Uh, we're looking at wow to ow and back. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I like that. It's almost a palindrome. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, um, Gerald, would you tell folks how they can reach you if they're interested? Sure. My company is Thought Leaders, then followed by I N T L for International. Uh, that's how they can reach me. You can check out my website. And uh, if you look on Amazon for the Genius Machine, uh, my blog is up there too, so that you can trace me back that way. Um, I'm pretty easy to find. Great. And uh, do you have a way people can follow your blog? Yes, my I blog. Uh, you can either find a link through uh, Thought Leaders International's website, or you can look at a, a website called Endliofon, which is the old British word for 11, which is, of course, the 11 steps cool. of the Genius Machine. So Endliofon is dot com is me and that's E N D L E O F O N. E N D L E O F O N. I will uh, post that on my uh, website as well so that folks Thank can, you. Uh, can find you. It has been a real pleasure and uh, I look forward to staying in touch. Thanks, Nikki. It's been great for me too and good luck with your next project. Oh, thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye bye. Okay, bye. Okay, terrific. I want to just take a a short minute here to thank our sponsor for today, and that is Transition Solutions, which is a a sister radio broadcast where we interview authors and experts to help folks who are in transition, whether they are out of work, whether they are underemployed, uh, whether they're concerned about losing their job or considering leaving corporate America. Okay, great. We are going to move on to our next topic, which is leadership. And I am delighted to uh, welcome on the air, and hang on while I get him on the air. There we go. Good morning, Al. Good morning. How are you this morning? I am doing just terrific. You sound terrific. (laughs) Well, I am delighted to have you as my guest. Where where are you calling in from? I'm today? calling from Cleveland, Ohio. Very good. Well, I grew up in your uh, neighbor state, uh, Indiana, so not too far away. It's a lovely, lovely state. 
What part of Indiana? Uh, I was in central Indiana, Greenfield and Rushville, okay. uh, right along uh, Interstate 40. But now I live in Tampa, Florida, and I'm thoroughly enjoying living where I can see water and boats and palm trees every day. And my wife was born and raised in Boynton Beach, Florida, oh, which wow. is across, just across the way. Exactly. South not of Palm Beach. Far. Well, good. Well, Al, why don't you tell me a little bit about your background? I know about your book, and we'll get to that in a minute, but uh, you have a, a very long career, and you've overcome a lot of things in, in your life, and I'd just like to hear a little bit about your background. Well, my background <clears throat> commenced in 1928 when I went downtown to Cleveland, in Cleveland, Ohio, to Frankfurt Avenue, which is overlooking the Cuyahoga River, and then would sit on the curbstones with maybe eight or ten of my dad's company workers, and we would share, they would share some of their meals, and they would look around and say, if the old boy's not around, give him some coffee. (laughs) And this was, to me, the epitome of reaching the very, very top of the the ladder. I could not have been more at home nor more happy being recognized and part of these younger groups of people. And then off I went through schooling, joined the Army in 1943, did a year's service in the U.S., and spent two years in Italy and in Germany. And it was a magnificent experience as I look back over the past 65 years. I appreciate it more and more because we of our generation had 10 years of depression followed by six years of war. And there were instilled in us the respect, the responsibility of doing what we ourselves were capable of doing and constantly helping our fellow man. And one of my fama, two of my fondest memories are the way we used to take care of little kids in Italy when we go through the chow line, and we would give them whatever we had left over. And then in Germany, I was able to take care of a family, and they invited me to Christmas because their youngest daughter, they lived in a bombed-out apartment, and she was sick with the influenza, the like of which I had never experienced, and I went to Colonel Hal Moody, who was chief medical officer for the United States forces in Europe, and told him the plight. And he said, well, Sergeant, you've done a lot for me. This girl needs 10 days of penicillin. Take care of your job. So, yes, war is hell, but it also has its more lovely sides. And sure, when I was over there, we all wanted to hurry up and get home as fast as we could. Right. But the appreciation of that experience and then carrying it through your life, reach your hand out to help your fellow man, regardless of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Then I went to Harvard and had a fine time there, got well-educated, went to Harvard Business School, worked for Eastern States Petroleum in Houston, Texas, and then I worked making padlocks and hardware for Yale in town, and road paving equipment. And finally, after years, I went to work for my dad's company, the Weatherhead Company, which today, if it were still 
around would be a, a two billion, two and a half billion dollar corporation, wow. and that had been my lifelong desire to help him build what was truly ours. And I remember one confrontation with Dad early on when I was in my 30s. He said, you work here for a salary and your bonus. And I was so enraged that I shot back at him with fire coming out of my mouth. I said, I will work here without pay because I'm proud of myself and what I do, and I'm proud of what this company does and can do for the rest of the world. So if you don't want to pay me, fine, I'll still work here. (laughs) And then I had been the heir apparent to his presidency, and fortunately for me at the time, I thought I had been figuratively speaking, crucified when I was thrown out of his company as being uh, a rebel who on occasion drank too much. And uh, that was one of the more painful falls that I took on the hard surface of the concrete. And I, why me, why me, why me? Wow. And I responded, well, why not me? And that was the making of me. Had I stayed in my father's shadow, there would have always lingered over my head Joe Biffelstick from Lil Abner. Yeah, right. he's got a cloud over me. His dad did all this for him. And so I started my own company in the plastic cap enclosure business. And you, thank you very much, and all your audience, use our closures for anything that you can shake or pour or sprinkle, such as vitamins and, and drugs and seasonings and most anything you can think of right and it's been a real thrill and a scary ride because when we started out we only had eight or ten employees and then you're left alone in the by yourself and saying i wonder if i can make it through i wonder if i can make it through and there are times when you are stretched to the limit and think god i guess i'll give up and at that point i, I simply say no, there's no way you're going to give yourself that stupid gift. You need the gift of work to keep yourself occupied. Now we're chugging along. I originally had two customers. Now we have 300 customers, and we have about 105 employees. Wow. Well, over over the course of all of those years, Al, I understand that you have overcome uh, on on the physical side alcoholism and heart disease and rheumatoid arthritis, but you've also suffered through failed marriages, the death of a child. What made you decide to take those experiences and write The Power of Adversity? That, that is one of the most fascinating questions. I was asked by Cleveland business people, to say to write a book on business, and I said, "Who wants to read another book by Al Weatherhead? The shelves are so overloaded; they're creaking and about to crack under the weight of all the volumes in business." And I happened upon the thought of sharing with the world some of these experiences that nearly break your spirit, nearly break your body. And I said, "Well, okay, I will go ahead and explain." And when I got to the some of the parts many years ago, it took me seven years to write the book, I said at 2 or 3 in the morning, I said, 
no, I'm not going to write this book. I do not wish people to know what a fool I can be. <laughs> and I almost quit. And I said, well, what is your purpose in writing this book? And my own response was, it's to help those who have ha are having similar experiences. And they, if they read through this book, they find that taking the problem boring right into it and fatally dealing with it, then you have succeeded. And I said, and furthermore, the guy on the West Coast isn't going to know, know me from Adam. Right. Or to use an old Western expression, not going to know me from a bale of hay. So <laughs> the purpose is achieved by writing about, okay, I'm a, a drunk, and I used to go on periodic binges with maybe a nine to 12 months between binges. And I joined AA and I found the outreach of the people and the interchange of the stories and we understood one another was one of the most uh, greatest gifts I ever had. <laughs> I was giving a lead in the early days and I was explaining how being a periodic drunk to the assembly members and how being a periodic drunk was just a step or a cut above the fellow laying in the gutter. Right. So I then was patting myself on the <clears> back, <throat> and Jack Ball, a true old-timer, stood up and he looked at me and he said, Al, you're nothing but a drunk who is periodically sober. Aww. And that leveled me, and I said, well, Holy smokes, I have now no excuses to hide. And if I had listened perhaps to myself, then I would have had slips, as we call them. And it, that was a wonderful gift from a, a great friend. So I've been able, since 1966, when I was in Rosary Hall, and there is a bit of a humorous touch to Rosary Hall. It was run, run by... Mary, Sister Mary Victorine, who had that beautiful white habit, she was a lovely, lovely lady, and we got together and raised some money for her, and it amounted to $75,000, and I went down to explain it to her, and she said, you, Al, are lying to me. There is no such a thing as $75,000 in the whole face of the earth. You really mean $7,500. So I gave her the check, and she couldn't believe it. And she was a beautiful, beautiful lady. And I said, Vicky, you know, I wish you hadn't put the habit on because you and I could have gotten married. <laughs> so we had a great rapport, and she used to keep track of me because I would go down and visit Rosary Hall, and I just was in love with her. But you get so many wonderful rewards from these experiences that, that sharing them with people and say, gee, if he did this, I can do this. Getting, for example, through RA, rheumatoid arthritis, I've had a couple of calls from a lady on the West Coast whose daughter has, at 42, is just coming down with it. So I referred her to Christian Barnard's The Arthritis Handbook, and he, of course, is a world-famous open heart surgery, did the first transplant many, many years ago. Right. Uh, suffered horribly from rheumatoid arthritis, 
And in this book, he quotes the Mayo Clinic statistics that one in five totally recover. And that became a catechism for me, and I was telling this Linda about it, and she's gone to get the book. And then 50% of people recover from rheumatoid arthritis without any joint disability. So there is great hope in being able to pass this information on to those who are suffering from this is uh, just, a, again, another gift. Right. So, you know, Al, people often feel overwhelmed and defeated when they face uh, whether it's physical problems or, or financial problems, and we've got so much of that looming right now. Why do you think so many people are unable to see the positive side of negative situations? Well, I think, I don't think I know from experience, that it's terribly debilitating, terribly. It's like being hit, 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 hit into the ground, and you don't quite understand it. And you you look into the future rather than saying, look, I'm going to look at the first bridge I have to cross, and that's taking care of myself and understanding, beginning to understand. And it's the normal human reaction, I think, the world over to turn uh, disaster, defeat, uh, pounding into the ground, economic losses, family losses, in to an immediate response that is just, it carries you to the depths of a chasm, and you think, good Lord, I'll never get out of this. Right. And so if you take time and incorporate time and allow it to do its thing just every 24 hours, even if, for example, being an AA, if you feel you would need to drink, just put it off for an hour, and, and pretty soon you'll find that was not such a bad experience. And these experiences that we're now going through, yes, are are tragic and unnecessary, but we have lived in since the 90s on credit, and we haven't believed, or we've, it's been in disbelief that anything of an economic downturn could happen to us. Right, and I think it's the good Lord. I like to think about the good Lord and myself. God, as I understand Him, He floats around on a cloud above me and above the world, and He says, oh, "That fellow on the weatherhead's getting a little bit too big for his britches. I guess I'll whack him with something." And so it was rheumatoid arthritis, or it was being a drunk, and as He gives me the whack. He kind of smiles benevolently at me, and he says, I'll give him something to do for a while, and I'll go off and take care of the rest of the world, and I'll stop by to see how he's doing the progress he's making. So if you look at it in that light, we all suffer these things, and you take it with this sense of there's a reason for it to strengthen our character, and nobody necessarily likes to have by force, their character straightened up and made a sure, better person sure. out of it. Well, I, I think the interesting thing, and you've hit on this uh, in, in telling your own story, is, is we have two choices of who our teacher is going to be. We can either learn from the wisdom of the mistakes of others 
and and, and you know clearly uh, you know it, I believe it was God God's intention uh, to actually lay out all the stories in the Old Testament to show us that the people he had raised up as leaders, you know, David and Solomon, you know, the, these weren't men who had no problems. I mean, these were men who dealt with things, uh, you know, every bit as bad as, as alcohol. Perhaps and, worse. And, yeah, and, and certainly they had, you know, the death of many children. Or, you know, or we can choose to learn from consequences. And, and you had a lot of pain, painful lessons through consequences. But we're fortunate that we can sit back and, and we can use wisdom as, as our teacher. And, and it can help shape who we are in our character and to change our circumstances moving forward. And, and to take a look at what kind of counsel we're going to take into our lives. So... Um, you know, I'm really glad that you have shared your story. Now, as I understand it, in The Power of Adversity, one of the things that you write about is is the concept of sweat equity and that sweat equity can help people master their current problems. So in, in the context of how you've used it in The Power of Adversity, what is sweat equity? Sweat equity is what you build up throughout your lifetime by experience. I think this probably... Is uh, I, I feel that that, that I, was, I was thinking I was that I was failed to emphasize sufficiently that God ordained our slow schooling from ignorance to knowledge and from folly to wisdom and from sin to holiness and you don't do that the day you're born so you go through this period mm-hmm. and that's how you build up sweat equity. Got it. Now, you you also talk about seven selfish virtues that can be used to conquer the bitterness and anger that accompany adversity, or or that can certainly accompany adversity. What are are those virtues? (laughs) I have to look them up in the book. (laughs) Well, maybe you can just talk in general about how how those qualities play an important role in the battle against adversity. Because, I mean, that that really, what you've described is is that when we look at adversity as an enemy, we miss the teacher. It's, we not, miss... An, it's not an enemy at all. It's a friend. Right. And it's, <clears throat> nobody likes to have an enemy as a friend. Right. But when you, when you put your arm around the enemy and all of these things that are disturbing you, bothering you, and saying, I don't need it. I shouldn't have this. Why me? The answer to the question really is why not me? There's a greater plan for us, and we need to recognize that plan and proceed with it and grasp it and nurture it and say, come on, let's get going. You came here for a reason, and I'm going to use you instead of you using me. Right. Well, one of the things that I do, uh, I I mentor uh, a lot of uh, leaders, and one of the things I have them do is to lay out a timeline and to put a dark circle on those things uh, that really did represent adversity in their lives. And nearly always, just around the corner from that adversity, are actually the diamonds uh, of of the the turning points in their lives that, that couldn't have happened without that adversity. And, uh, you know, if you just look at the process of making diamonds itself, it's through the adversity of the, the pressure, you know, underneath the, the earth uh, that actually creates the amazing uh, stone that a diamond is. And, and that hardness, uh, you know, comes out of that adversity. 
Well, certainly. I mean, after all, as I say here, I see it's luckier to earn than to receive. Just being given tons of money, excuse me, does not necessarily doesn't do do you any good. It's much better that you go out and earn it yourself. Excuse me. You then have the right. No such word as right, but you can do with it as you please. And people today think they measure themselves by money and how much they have. But you can only put so many one pair of pants on at a time and sleep in one bed and drive one car. So that that brings me to my next question, really, Al. Your business success, actually, you know, after all the failures and the turmoil with your father's company and and the various jobs you had, your business success actually led you to philanthropy and to creating a legacy based on the success that that you had. So tell me how important that philanthropic work has been to you uh, on the inside. I mean, it's easy to see what it yields on the outside. Well, the I don't call it philanthropy. I don't necessarily call it giving back. Take the example of Case Western Reserve and their business school, now known as the Weatherhead School of Management. And 30 years ago, I said, here's an opportunity. Their business school and the Case, Case Western Reserve occupied a half a floor in a library. And I just happened to be looking at this thing with a friend of mine, the dean, Ted Alford. <clears throat> and I said, well, why don't we create a professorship? And that would help out fund the professorship. And he said, well, there is a naming opportunity. So I said, well, okay, let's do that. And fear and trepidation after I made that commitment, I said, now how am I going to pay for it? <laughs> And the true answer is it became sweat equity because the then, the then sitting president said they never, Case Western Reserve never bothered me. Scott Cowan, who's now president of Tulane, I appointed the dean in 1984, <clears throat> and he and I worked together for 14 years. And during that 14 years, we built three buildings. And he got people to donate that, but it was the the work, mental work, the planning, the scheming, the, the burning the midnight oil <clears throat> that led to our success. We get, got, as I said, $90 million worth of, of buildings. One of them was designed <clears throat> by Frank Gehry, and we have the most gorgeous Frank Gehry building you have ever seen in your life. And it's here in Cleveland, and the people, my thinking about it was, people in Cleveland don't know what's good for them. I do. And I had that much self-confidence, and away we went. And then we went through (coughs) years when Scott went on to become the uh, the president of Tulane, and I said, well, you certainly fixed me. You left me, and I haven't finished Frank Gary building, which the authorities, the trustees, and the and the faculty were when we dug the the beginning parts of the Gary building, they were going to fill it in. And I said, "You're not going to fill it in." <clears throat> so we got one donor to give us 
60% of the $62 million the building cost, and then we went out and said, come on, let's go raise money and finish this because it's a gift to this city and to this region. And it's such an attractive, such a compelling piece at all that during six or seven years I was the interim dean, and we went through all kinds of scandalous happenings. And one of the saddest things I was talking to some people last night is a young lad by the name of Norman Wallace, was killed by a nut who happened to be roaming about the uh, Frank Gehry building, and this nice young black man was standing outside of the, the little eatery that's in the building, and he was shot and dropped dead on the spot. <coughs> and I was in involved in this whole affair, and I happened to be in the Frank Gehry building, and the authorities People said, nobody's supposed to be anywhere on this campus. And I said, well, this is my school I built, and I'm going to just be here. Mm-hmm. And uh, the family came in, and they were, they were brought by Bishop Wagner. And the they went around, and there were 14 or 16 or 18 of them. Bishop Wagner hailed me over, and he said, who are you? I said, I'm Weatherhead. He said, you build this building? I said, No. I did not. I've helped construct this school. And he gathered the family together on the spot where Norman Wallace was killed, and he said, this is Mr. Weatherhead who created this school, and he wants to talk to you and tell you what he feels. How I responded is a mystery, and God helped me out. I said that Norman Wallace has left us a task and that task is to create a better life for all of those who remain behind, and you as his family, the bishop as his religious counselor, and I just are extending our hearts and our hands and our souls to you in this moment of crisis. But Norman has left us a mission, and that mission is to make better the education for the future generations who go through this school. So he has entrusted to us that responsibility, and we as a group will go forward together. And I know the president of the university had to overhear me, and he came along and he said, where and how did you ever make those those statements? I said, I do not know. It was mm. simply a gift at the moment. And then we all started to go our separate ways, the whites one way and the blacks the other way, and I said, this is crazy. So I went over and I got each of the black members and I gave them a hug and a kiss and said, remember what Norman has charged us to do. And you're lucky, I'm lucky, and to know you, and you are lucky that we had such a magnificent young 20-plus-year-old guy. So this is leadership. This is what you do for people. Absolutely. Well, Al, it has been just such a delight to have you this morning, and and you clearly know firsthand the pain, sadness, and frustration that life can bring, but you have... uh, through your own adversity, I think, shown uh, a level of strength and, and uh, a, a, a real plan for leadership uh, for people to take the exercises, tips, and advice uh, that you have in, in the book, The Power of Adversity, 
and give them the tools that they need to make adversity work for them instead of against them. So, uh, again, I would like to thank you for, for being our guest this morning, and uh, I just uh, wish Godspeed on you, and thank you for the legacy that you've left behind, Al. Thank you, Chicky. I think you're wonderful. I hope you've seen the movie. I love you, man. Because <laughs> I can say back to you, I love you, Chick. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much, Al. You have a great day. Okay, you do likewise. Okay. Bye-bye, sweetie. Bye-bye. Okay, well, that was just an amazing uh, interview. We never uh, did get specific with Al on on, uh, exactly how old he is now, but he certainly shared uh, decades and decades uh, of, of wisdom with us, and hopefully... Those of you who are listening to the show know that it is a lot wiser to learn from the wisdom of others than to have consequence as your teacher. And uh, hopefully we can all leave behind the kind of legacy uh, that Al is leaving. Okay, we are going to shift gears just a little bit, and we are going to turn to talking about growth, teamwork, and collaboration, and I am going to bring on my next guest who is incredibly passionate about the subject of collaboration. Good morning, Diane. Good morning, Chicky. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Well, I am excited uh, to talk a little bit more formally. You and I had a little bit of time to chat uh, a, a little bit ago about both your consulting firm and about your book and and uh, about the other book that you're working on. So let's uh, kind of start at the beginning, and why don't you tell us uh, a bit about your background and how you came to write your first book. Very well. Um, Chickie, teams have always been somewhat of an interest uh, to me, but 20 years ago it got really critical. And uh, what I was discovering in life is that the top-down business structures were very advantageous for some people and not for others. For some reason, um, it, it could have been because of race, color, creed, or whatever, some people seemed to go forward up those ladders of success in these hierarchical companies, and others didn't, even though they were bright, uh, they were very talented, and maybe even more skilled in communicating uh, and listening and actually creating an environment, a healthy work environment um, in the workplace. And so about 20 years ago, I, I kind of stepped back and I said, okay, I'm curious what really makes a very ethical, quality-focused, productive, and extremely successful group of people. And I took that into my master's program, at Gonzaga University, brought that question into it, and studied everything I could find in group dynamics uh, that related to psychology, education, and business group dynamics. I felt that the answer to this question was more holistic. It had to do with how we teach one another, mentor one another uh, in life, and but it had to make good common business sense or uh, success for the group that was, you know, coming together to achieve something of value. And, Chicky, what I found was really interesting. 
I was expecting to find some management technique. Or uh, uh, at that time, uh, Ken Blanchard had written the one-minute manager. You know, I was hoping to find some sort of technique, but what was very interesting um, was uh, what surfaced out of all this, uh, all the studies and research on group dynamics were sex universal themes. And the, these themes related to trust, interdependence, the idea if we win, I win, instead if I win, you may win, mm-hmm. uh, genuineness, being able to tell the truth, be who you are in the workplace instead of coming with a mask, uh, empathy, risk, and success. And once this model came together, I went, I, I stepped back and I thought, oh my gosh, this makes such common sense. It's so simple. But is it really true? So then my master's thesis was the development of a survey that I could give to two people in a marriage or to a company like Boeing, which was one of the companies that worked with me in the development of this survey. And um, what I discovered was that not only was the model very true, it actually predicted behaviors. So what this meant was that if those six values, trust, interdependence, genuineness, empathy, risk, and success were present in a group or a relationship, there would be predictable outcomes. At the same time, Chicky, if they weren't present, there would also be predictable outcomes. So um, in getting to the part of your question in terms of the first book, one of the first projects, uh, other than spending two years to validate this model, was a project I put together with four other people. We were all independent consultants that came together uh, to uh, work with uh, a native enterprise, uh, an Indian, native Indian um, American enterprise. And our task was to reorganize uh, a furniture factory. And uh, working the values within this organization to help them achieve uh, what they came together to do was absolutely remarkable and the project came together in such a way an advancement was made so quickly that since this project was funded by the Native American Enterprise out of uh, Washington DC it was noticed by an intergenerational conference organizer who was developing a conference that was UN uh, supported uh, out of Minneapolis. And I was asked to uh, present the case study of this work at that conference. And what came from that then was uh, an offer to publish with some other thinkers um, in the U.S. and around the world who were looking at collaboration as an alternative to competition uh, to solve global problems, to build businesses, to create 
uh, value within their various economies. And the first book was uh, Working Together uh, that was edited by Angelise Aaron. And the next book uh, that I'm writing currently in response to your question uh, is a book where over 20 years have now happened since this model uh, first emerged out of my work and out of my studies. And remarkable things have happened with this model. It's absolutely amazing how it just blooms in the hearts and minds of people who become associated with it. Work becomes an opportunity to excel as a human being. So what I'm doing now is interviewing CEOs of team-based companies who uh, are telling their stories of how their work came to to, to be, how they um, uh, how they are providing uh, worth and value uh, for people in the workplace, and it doesn't have to be a huge company. It could be a company with five employees, but when these values are evident and bloom, what we find is that employees absolutely love the company. They can't imagine working anywhere else. And they protect the company. Um, They help it excel. And they share in the profits of that company as well. If you think about it, that's how Bill Gates, you know, actually started Microsoft. One of the things... um that I'm curious about is, you know, out of these different uh, dynamics that that need to be present in in the model that you've outlined, how many of them are are more uh, appropriate to a particular gender or more natural, if you will? Because I I think about empathy as as, uh, something being, you know, much more female in nature than than being male oriented and and one would argue that that risk might be considered to be something that's more natural for men than women what what has been your observation uh both generationally and and in in the different sexes uh you know which ones are easier for them to embrace uh, in a team culture well you know that is a wonderful question uh initially when i started the model not a lot of attention was given to empathy at all. I mean, if you think about competition as being the model of upward mobility within a company, people will do what they need to do to win. Sometimes it's because of sheer talent and ability. Other times it's cheating or some other... uh, uh, less than honest method of moving forward in an organization by holding other people back. So when conflict resolution and uh, you know being able to work with diversity within organizations that really came about in the late 80s, then we saw the flattening of organizations in the 90s, 95, in this time period, empathy started coming to the forefront 
as well as with good listening skills, communicating with the um, object in mind of understanding another person. Mm-hmm. So initially, the most resistance was from people who were already winning. And I think that we see that almost in any uh, change dynamic. The people who are winning are the ones that are most resistant to change because when they have to change their dynamic, they go back to kind of ground zero having to learn how to win again. And when <clears throat> that winning is the is your uh, financial uh, uh, success in the world, that dynamic changes. So from a gender standpoint, we began to see books coming out in the late 80s, early 90s uh, that, that showed women that the skills that they have to drive uh, businesses and to create collaboration in the workforce are very valid um, skills. And at the same time, women were leaving high-paid positions within companies I can think of one, I've got one person in mind uh, right, well, uh, right away who was the vice president of a company who was told <clears throat> if she didn't move into a position where she traveled uh, frequently and she had small children at the time, that uh, she couldn't have her job. And she took the bluff and she says, that's fine, I quit. They were stunned. They couldn't replace her. But she went off and crafted her own business and did extremely well. So women began to leave. If you think about the 90s, uh, the late 80s and early 90s, women who found themselves peeling themselves off a glass window almost on a daily basis in terms of being able to climb that ladder of success left organizations. At the same time, um, that that risk-taking, that uh, success that we subscribe to men, women were beginning to do. And at the same time, men were getting in touch with their feelings about things. And I think what has emerged in the last 20 years is a potential, at least, in the CEOs that I am interviewing for my new book, which is a balance between men and women, I'm finding a very balanced uh, male and female that's not only in touch with empathy, but also is willing to take the risk and make the hard decisions, uh, but not in a way that undermines people. Everything is more transparent and well understood. So I think over the last 20 years, we have seen more, I guess, human cognitive growth. And um, uh, the team culture actually is a step beyond the collaborative, or I mean the competitive culture. In other words, it takes a certain dynamic and ability to think uh, that uh, makes you successful as a competitor, but you have to grow beyond that to be a successful collaborator. And I'm seeing more of that, especially as we see 
Generation Y, the kids that are graduating from high school now and colleges now, who are entering the, the workforce, they've had their entire life has been involved more in team learning. And they've learned skills and are coming out of colleges now expecting to see those skills in the workplace. And uh, the uh, business literature is absolutely filled with what to do with these folks because they're the next generation of talent coming forward and they're not, they're kind of, they're still slamming into hierarchies, but when they find a team culture, um, they tend to do extremely well. Uh, so you Diane, know, what, when you go in and talk to a company about this methodology, what are what are your biggest barriers, or what, tell us the one one thing that's the biggest barrier when you talk to a CEO? Well, uh, it, it, not all CEOs are like this, but many CEOs have been raised in the competitive culture. And they'll say, okay, we've got to do teams. <laughs> you know, we saw this in the 90s. We've got to do teams. We need to flatten our organization. We need to do it in the next two years. And I'll say, well, how many vice presidents and senior managers are you willing to fire? Because change that helps a person move cognitively beyond the competitive model to the collaborative model may take five years, six years to implement as people learn new skills. So I think impatience and wanting it now are the key things that I run into. And there's one other thing I run into. People use teams as a buzzword. Yeah, we have teams. They might be a group of managers that get together to problem solve, and these managers get any performance bonuses that are out there. Um, But that's really not a team culture. They're trying to do, they're like straddling two sides of the fence. They still have their individualistic culture on one side where uh, people, just a few people are going to climb the ladder to the top of success instead of everybody uh, sharing in the success of an organization. And the other side, which is a team culture, where everybody is responsible for that bottom line. Everybody is expected to be um, entrepreneurial uh, and work with collaboratively with uh, other people. So organizations that think they have teams, uh, when I actually talk to their employees, they may not know what the value structure of their company is. So uh, it's like the, the company tries on a new suit <laughs> every year trying to, you know, create some uh, fit, but the owners of the company, the CEOs of the company are still invested in the competitive individualistic culture, and until they change, oftentimes organizations can't change. Right. That makes sense? Right. It does. So so what is the diagnostic that you use uh even on the very first element of trust, how how do you determine within a company uh, if there if trust is present when you start? Well, you know, it's pretty evident when it's not present. <laughs> you know, can you imagine two porcupines trying to dance? <laughs> you know? right. They're just kind of you know walking around each other, and basically, one diagnostic tool is to go in and. Um, 
give absolute confidence um, to every employee that their answers to the questions are uh, candid, that they will not be shared with management from an individual standpoint, who said what, who answered a test, how. And, you know, I basically ask questions. You know, people trust within this organization, and I give them a sliding scale. You will see from a from a trust application, um, people chicky who do not trust aren't going to share what they think. So <laughs> this is very serious uh, for an organization that is trying to be successful, especially if it's uh, paying stockholder dividends. If it's headed in a direction that's not going to be successful, yet you have no employee who will risk stepping forward to outline uh, potential hazards that the uh, company could uh, fall into, like, you know, um, maybe we see a lot of that currently um, in our uh, current economy, that organization is just going to go right over that cliff. Um, If uh, people don't trust within an organization, you know, they will hide information. They'll hide the truth. They'll manufacture some other reality to put forward. Trust is extremely important uh, to an organization, but if people feel that um, they're not safe to step forward with genuine information if they are, um, if they don't feel that they can tell the truth, if they have to hide what they know, right. if they have to hide information, uh, this is a, uh, you know, this is a disaster for any organization in terms right, of right. on long-term uh, success and sustainability. Right, and, and clearly you can't get to that place of interdependence if you haven't uh, already gotten the trust thing down. And I remember the days, and, and gosh, this had to be over 20 years ago because I was still in corporate life, you know, where we went off on, on the outward bound experiences and, you know, <laughs> fell off walls in, into a group of your, your peers. And, and while that forced the appearance of team building, <laughs> and, you know, I remember the, you know, sharing and people crying and, you know, but when we went back to the office, the culture hadn't changed accordingly. And, oh, and you exactly. Couldn't, you couldn't extract, uh, you know, this this group and then, then bring it back. And, I mean, you know, clearly you used the term genuineness. And our, our previous uh, interview uh, with, with Al was talking about, you know, authenticity. And, and I think that was actually echoed uh, in my first interview with, with Gerald as well is that, you know, we have to bring that authenticity of who we are. And if, if there are still those elements of, uh, you know, a lack of trust or a lack of, of that interdependence, um, you know, it's pretty tough to be genuine. And, and again, if you don't have those, clearly you can't get to the place of, of having empathy for someone either. Well, no, you can't. And, in fact, genuineness, empathy, and risk, oddly enough, spells grr. <laughs> that- <laughs> within the workplace 
um, that, you know, if you can't be genuine, if you can't be empathetic to understand the other person's perspective, and if you can't uh, take the risk to bring what you know forward, you have a tremendous conflict. So, like you say, and I totally agree with you, when you go out onto an adventure course and, quote, you're supposed to team build, when you still have, you have to come back from that event, that very fun day, and um, you still have this growl going on in the workplace. How how can a person function? It's almost like a split uh, dynamic. And truly, the the people that control that growl, who can make it go away, are the senior management team. And if they're not invested in the change. They're just biding their time until they retire. There's no way that you you will have a culture of change and trust and interdependence and genuineness and empathy and risk and success within the workplace. And there's been times, Chicky, and this again echoes the truth of what you said, there's been times when, you know, you go in and part of understanding the other person is understanding yourself, you know, and so we'll do something like a leadership survey or a personality survey or something like that so people can understand that there are people who think differently than them in the room, process information differently, solve conflict differently, bring forth what they know differently. And a person will ask me, well, hmm, do you want me to fill this out like I am at work or at I am at home, <laughs> right? And I'll say, how much stress are you under? Oh, gosh, I'm under a lot of stress. So who I am at home, this vital, vibrant, intelligent, growing, dynamic human being with a set of traits and abilities has to put on a different suit that doesn't fit at work. Right. Right. And when you have that um, dichotomy going, how can you be that entrepreneurial force of excellence in the work that you do? How can you grow as a human being um, to truly uh, become a better listener right? and a better implementer and a better... Uh, intelligent risk taker you know how can you be that how can you grow to your full potential in a place where you spend probably more of your life working than you spend in conversation with your own family yeah absolutely well i certainly have lots of uh scenarios in my life where, uh, you know, I didn't find those elements. And I, I think that's why I didn't do, uh, you know, as well in corporate America as I have done as an entrepreneur. And, you know, being able to control, uh, even with my clients, you know, as a consultant of if, if I come in and, you know, I, I certainly have not articulated it the way that you have, but if you can't get past some of those first elements and can't get past the corporate politics, even in a consulting engagement, 
you know, pretty much I turn around and walk the other way because you know you can't ever get to that place where they're willing to risk on doing something new and, and actually have, have some success in, in the venture. Well, Diane, I've really appreciated uh, you sharing your Tigers model. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, your next book and, and uh, hope to find the time this summer uh, actually to read your Working Together uh, book. Uh, why don't you tell folks how they can uh, get in touch with you? Certainly. Um, well, since uh, the TIGERS acronym is kind of core value based, they can go to corevalues.com. If you think of trust as a value, you'll remember uh, core values. Go to corevalues.com. We have some fun stuff on our website for people who want to visit. If you go to About You, <clears throat> our About You tab, on the website, we have all sorts of sort of self-discovery free surveys that you're welcome to go in and take. Uh, we also offer a free newsletter where we talk about uh, uh, this, uh, this concept in, in various scenarios on a monthly basis. And um, we do not share your contact information uh, if you want to uh, leave uh, your information on our website. We don't share it. We don't spam you. (laughs) That's the truth. So join us at corevalues.com. And thanks, Chickie, for asking that question. That's nice to be able to share that on your show. Well, it's my pleasure, and uh, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to create with Solutions Live is is really an authors bureau, uh, giving authors the opportunity uh, to talk about their books and and about their various projects that they've got uh, going on. I know we have a lot of uh, want to be authors, uh, you know, who are listeners to the show, and it was great to start uh, the day with with Gerald, who I realized later is actually a coach for authors, which is. Oh, to know and to have that as a resource. Absolutely. So terrific. And it's well, great to be able to share. So thank you so much. Okay, terrific. Well, good luck with your uh, next book project and uh, have a great day. You do too, Chicky, and thanks again. Okay, terrific. Well, we are going to switch gears one more time, although uh, talking about collaboration and teams and and entrepreneurialism is actually a perfect opening uh, to our next guest, and I'm going to bring my co-host on the phone. Uh, Just bear with me one second. Good morning, Pamela. Good morning. How are you today, Chicky? I'm doing great. I feel like it's been so long since we have talked. We uh, took a couple of breaks from uh, from the show, and uh, it is great to be back. And how is Sergey doing? Oh, he is doing great. Thank you for asking. Sergey is my nine-year-old who broke his leg playing football uh, actually two weeks ago today when we were on the show. And uh, he is looking forward to getting a half cast next week, and I'm pretty sure we aren't going to be able to keep him from running when he does that. (laughs) Can't keep a good man down. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I would love for you to introduce our next guest. Well, I'm really excited to have our guest today with us because I know how important public relations is to entrepreneurs and how much of us um, need some guidance in that area if we haven't done it before. Um, so we're welcoming today Sabina Patasin, and I, hopefully I got the pronunciation correct there, um, who I've met through this amazing organization that she co-founded 
called Collective E, and I'm sure she'll tell us some more about Collective E. Um, but Sabina also has an amazing background. She used to be a high school teacher, uh, went on to work in corporate PR, and then escaped from corporate America to start her own PR business, which is called Red Branch PR, and works a lot with entrepreneurs and small businesses, and then became a founder of uh, of Collective E. So we'll cover more on all of that, but I just want to say welcome to Sabina. Well, thanks, ladies, for having me. And you said my last name perfectly. So. Oh, good. Gold star. And believe me, I've heard a lot of different versions of it. My whole name's always been butchered. So well done, Pam. <laughs> you know, I've, I've talked to Sabina so often, and I don't know if I've ever actually used her last name aloud. <laughs> I've been, you know, I was called, as you said, I was a teacher before. So for many years, I was just Miss P. And um, so I respond to that, too. No problem. <laughs> That'll be your stage name. <laughs> exactly. Or I'll just be Sabina, like Madonna. <laughs> That's right. I like it. Well, so why don't you tell us a little bit more just to start out before we get into the PR tips, which I know people are and, going to and love. And, Sabina, just to get the volumes uh, kind of in sync, because your volume on your phone is just a tiny bit loud, if you have a way for to sure. it down just slightly. How does this sound for you? That is much better. Thank you so much. <laughs> no worries. Well, sure. Like many entrepreneurs, you know, I have a very colorful history of what I've done, and I actually, when in college, I studied political science and history thinking I'd do law, which was my first idea. And then after I graduated, I said, I'll give one year back to teaching. You know, there's so much inequity in education in our country and not enough teachers in areas that really need teachers. So I went to Chicago, and I went to the housing projects there to start, and I started teaching. And I taught high school history and political science. And after my one year finished, I stayed for four more years. And I ended up teaching with Bill Gates and the charter schools over there. And it was just an amazing experience. And though it sounds so different from public relations, I tell people, you know, every day I was selling history to 14 to 18-year-olds. And that's a tough gig. And um, after that, nothing else seemed really tough. <laughs> that's a great way to put it. <laughs> it's, you know, it's so true. And I did it for five years. And after that, I thought I always had this thought in my head, I need my New York story, my New York chapter. So after five years, I made the leap, and I moved here with not much of a net like most of us don't have when we take these big risks, and came here and ended up getting a job at Escada and doing some corporate PR there, and then went on to an agency, but I had something in me that said, this isn't the right fit, and I want to do this my way, a way I think would be fantastic, and I want to work with women in business and entrepreneurs. So then about a year later, I made that jump, and we started Red Branch PR. Yeah. And tell us about some of your clients at Red Branch. Oh, sure. So at Red Branch, you know, I, I founded Red Branch with a partner, and we said, what do we want to work with? Because the great thing about entrepreneurship is you choose your passion, you follow your passion, you do what you're good at. And we love working with women who are starting their own fashion businesses. Uh, so we got to have entrepreneurship. And we also got to work with women in business and fashion. And that's what we do. So we've worked with companies such as um, Gossamer. We've worked with companies such as Bestow Boutique and Michelle Barada, great designer in San Diego. So the common thread is all women with various sizes of businesses, but all women who are fashion designers doing it for themselves. Yeah. Very interesting. It's been really interesting. And while I was doing Red Branch, um, I was really fortunate to meet two amazing women, Katie Martin and Beth Schoenfeld, and meeting them, I was able to find two women who had a lot of passion about entrepreneurs like I did. And we decided to do something to help women launch their businesses, and that's what brought us to Collective E. Yeah, 
So uh, tell us some more about Collective E. I, of course, you're preaching to the choir with me because I've been to many of your great events, but tell us a little bit about what you offer through Collective E. Sure. Well, Collective E is basically an entrepreneur's agency with a community twist, and that means everything we do is based around our hope to help women nurture their ideas and build their brands. And because I came into it as a public relations expert, and Katie is an expert in online experience and SEO and web design, and Beth is a proven expert in female entrepreneurship, and she's helped thousands of women launch their own businesses. So we said there are four integral components to launching a business, and they all have to work in harmony in order for your business to really succeed, and that is your business strategy, your PR, and your online presence. And we believe that all of those things, those components, have to be housed in a community of female entrepreneurs that can help you propel your ideas forward because, you know, it's really hard to do it alone, and we all know that. And so why not combine these crucial elements and also put those in a community of like-minded women, and not just for the support that women give you, but also for the business collaborations and sharing contacts and encouraging each other. So all those things we found were critical and necessary. And, you know, our members' success is our success. So we said if we can put those together and make sure that everything we do at Collective E, from events to resources to tools to our website, everything is based on those four critical components. So when you join or when you just work with us for free through the newsletters or the website, they're all working together constantly to build your brand. Fantastic. Exactly. And we, you know, we think that um, well, you can't do it alone, so you need help. And even on our website, what's exciting, you know, we collective-e.com is our website. We do work on and offline, but on the website, we made sure our own site is heavily SEO'd and a really powerful site. So just giving our members and people around opportunities to link to us or to contribute to a blog or a forum is also going to grow their brand. So Katie brought in her SEO power and her sort of she's a web mistress. I tell her she's amazing. And she brought all that skill to our website. So our members, just by virtue of being members, are able to grow their brand online in their online presence. Right, and link to each other and promote each other. and uh, Exactly. There's all sorts of fun things we do because, you know, these days you can't hide from the Internet. And even I, I'm sometimes nervous about Facebook and Twitter and everything. But if you want to survive as a brand right now and be really relevant, you have to be visible everywhere and not just on your own website, but you have to be doing things on other people's websites and Twittering and Facebook and linking. And so all of those components are available through the site, and that allows them to get a little extra help and make sure they're participating out there. Because I always say, if you're not, someone else is. So make sure you're doing it and you're doing it right. Now, um, in the various services that you offer with Collective E, you know, you've got a, a basic access membership and you've got a core access membership, and, and there's a fee for each of those. So what kind of value are people really getting for, for what they're paying? Uh, oh, definitely. <clears throat> and what would they have to pay a PR person to do what they get out of Collective E? I, I think it's the real question. And I think, and you know, that question makes me think of something I always want to say, and I always sometimes get in trouble with my publicist friends, but I say, you know, don't hire a publicist when you're coming out right out the gate. And that's something I wanted to always say to people because, A, it's expensive, and, B, I think you need to understand the PR game a little bit and understand your brand and how it fits into that before you jump in and pay someone because, like you're saying, a publicist can start, you know, on the low end, it's still thousands of dollars a month. and the high end, it's double-digit thousands of dollars a month. And so even our, you know, our highest level membership is always going to be 
not thousands of dollars a month, and it's only going to be a few hundred, you know, four hundred dollars, four hundred fifty dollars a year. So, no matter what, you're never going to pay that, but you're going to get amazing value, and so you're going to get everything from PR leads. You know, I'm a, I'm still an active publicist and creative strategist, so I'm working every day through Red Branch PR and Collective E to create relationships with the media and to bring leads to our members and. A very exciting thing we do on the PR front right now is um, we have an entrepreneur directory and almost a marketplace of all of our members online. And so now more and more editors and producers and other powerful members in the media are going into our entrepreneur directory to pick out members for stories. And that's led to members being featured in Forbes and Daily Candy and CBS News and you know Reuters, which carries stories everywhere. So the PR component's been powerful. And even if you don't want to pay that membership, we have tips and advice from everything from producers of Good Morning America to, I know I was listening to your shows earlier today, we have literary agents giving tips on how to get a literary agent. So no matter, not just PR, but online and business strategy, whether you're a paying member or an unpaid person who's reading the newsletter and the site, there's every resource and tool you need to propel your brand in those areas. And um, we also do a monthly um free PR call. So for instance, this May 25th, we'll be doing PR spring training. And it's a free call for everyone to get on to, to talk about what you need to be doing right now with your own PR campaign. Right. Because, and like you say, again, we always, we, when we created Collective E, it was for giving entrepreneurs, you know, I'm an entrepreneur myself, so are both my partners. We've worked with scores of entrepreneurs amongst all of us. And we said, we need to give them value and really good resources that are useful and tools that they can use, you know, on the site alone, they can access a media database of every contact they need. They can access editorial calendars from magazines so they can see the stories every magazine will be doing for the entire year. So we're giving them the tools to really create that powerful PR campaign. Well, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, and, and uh, I have been in the midst of building a couple of new businesses, which is uh, kind of the, the new norm for me. Yeah, um, when you start, it's like a tattoo, I say. Once you have one, you want another and another. Though <laughs> so I don't have a tattoo, I'd like to say. <laughs> I'm surprised. Oh, that is a, a funny, funny analogy. But, you know, I, it, it's really curious to me because when, when I – uh, was writing business plans for other people, and, and I still do mm-hmm. that, my consulting firm. But, you know, I would always promote PR over advertising. I mean, that was just oh, a natural bent. I, I just felt it was a, a better better return for the dollar. And that was even before the days of social media where, you know, the viral nature of, of PR can really shine. Um, you know, but it, it's interesting that as an entrepreneur, I still know that that's true. But when it comes to actually spending money, um, you know, it, it's really hard to take the bite of the chunk, you know, that, that I was used to, which was, you know, like a $15,000 retainer and, mm-hmm. you know, $20,000 to develop, you know, a whole campaign strategy. And, um, you know, one of, one of my businesses is a technology company that, you know, we started out doing PR to, uh, to support the launch of the technology on a major online travel site. And, you know, in the first week we had, uh, you know, coverage, uh, half, half a page article in the New York Times, you know, front page of USA Today. And, I mean, it really, really worked. Um, 
but you know it it's very very difficult as an entrepreneur to think about how you navigate mm-hmm. uh, you know what a PR professional does for you and and I know from from my perspective right now the problem is I'm wearing every hat Definitely. And, and so you know one of the real challenges is making time <laughs> and making time even to do the the learning and the reading so I'm really glad to hear that you're doing Calls And one of the things that I'm encouraging people, uh, because I do a lot of social media uh, training and mentoring of of how people can improve their online reputation, and one of the things I encourage is audio and video because people don't have time to read. Or, or, Or we've gotten so used to skimming that we miss the details. Mm hmm So true. Again, I'm glad that you're you're thinking about that and having the calls and and more than just one medium, uh, you know, for people to reach you. Oh, definitely, and it's also you know it's a fun thing too because a call like that you can be. We've had members who listened on their way home on a bus from work because you know some people are still making that escape from from corporate America or wherever they may be, and you know we'll soon be bringing those to podcasts. You can download and listen to that advice anywhere. And then also, it reminds people just as, you know, we are practicing what we preach. So just as you're saying those things are essential to be able to listen to and make the time for, we hope that encourages our members and other entrepreneurs out there to think of components like that for their own PR campaigns. Because, you know, I always say every person who is a business owner or you know, has a product or service should also make themselves an expert. It's a great way to get press, to become an expert on the topic that you love so much and share your expertise with the media. So create your own audio and visual files as well. Right, yeah. right. And and it really is the way to get press these days because an announcement of a new product is just going to get lost in the noise. But if you can sell yourself as the expert on something, um, that's when the journalists come, come calling. They all want that juicy quote. And I know as someone who's been a journalist. <laughs> oh, it's so true. You know, what I see, I see, I'm surrounded, fortunately, with member success stories on a daily basis, which gets me excited, and it makes me keep pushing because I'm doing a lot of, wearing a lot of hats as well. And um, the members who get out there and they have multiple ways to share their story are the members that succeed. And, you know, just to share some ideas, we have a woman named Stephanie who runs a company called Well Alarm, and it's a super technologically advanced and fashion-forward medical ID system. And so she's not only sharing her product, but she is also an expert on these medical ID systems and medical alert systems, but also on items in the health, health industry. It's another way to get herself out there and share her story. Or we have a woman who invented a waterproof removable car seat cover. And I'm not a mother, but I hear from moms it's a lifesaver. But she doesn't just share that product because that story is going to get old. You know, there's always an ebb and flow of a need for a baby product. So she shares stories as a mompreneur, an expert in work-life balance. And so she has another side of her story, and she can share her story as an entrepreneur, which has led her to, you know, blog stories and the CBS stories and stories in Forbes. So she's going everywhere sharing multiple angles of her story. So if I'm an entrepreneur and let's say, you know, I have a product and I want to become that expert, what are some of the first and hopefully low-cost steps that I can take if I don't have a publicist to start to get my name out there as an expert in my field? Definitely. I mean, I, I'm always encouraging you got to go free first. So what I would do first is you have to be prepared. You know, plan your work and work your plan. So you don't want to start promoting yourself until everything on your back end is ready. So the first thing I would do is say, what are you an expert in? And it doesn't necessarily have to relate to your business, but it might, you know, it's most likely is. So let's say you are a makeup product company 
Um, we have Trey from Three Custom Colors. She makes makeup. So she's going to give expert tips on applying makeup or during the awards season, how to get the look of a celebrity for less. You know, whatever your product is, figure out what your expertise is, and then you're going to make what we're going to call a one sheet. And I'm sure you're familiar with it, but if our listeners aren't, you want to have your photo, preferably a decent headshot, and if you can't afford to get a photographer, have a friend or family member take a nice headshot of you that looks professional, and that's going to let them know what you look like, because to get on TV, they want to make sure you've got a, you know, you're prepared for TV, and then give a quick bio of yourself, you know, why you're an expert. So explain to them not your product, but sort of show, validate you're an expert. And then share a few talking points that you can talk about. So no matter what kind of product you have, you could be an expert on entrepreneurship or maybe an expert in time management. Figure out what that expertise is and turn those into talking points. And then you're going to, I would recommend starting with your local media. Don't start with national because you need to practice you need to get used to speaking on camera, and it's also easier to start small. So go to your local media. You can find their phone number on their website. Ask for the information desk. It's right there. And then you're going to go there and you're going to pitch yourself and explain to them you know, what your expertise is and what value you can share with their viewers. And I'd also say think seasonally. So right now we are in May. It's springtime. So think of what spring tips you can share or prepare yourself for summer because TV is a, you know, it's quick. It's a short lead. And what can you tie into that's really seasonal right now? They don't want to talk about, you know, Thanksgiving in May. So just tie your expertise into something that's very current. Or look at some breaking news stories that are on television right now or hot topics and think of how you can speak on those hot topics and, you know, spin yourself, as we say, into those topics. Right now, hot topics are everything from, you know, spring fashion to vacation tips, spring break tips, travel tips. You've got weight loss becoming something big because somewhere around the corners we're talking about fitness. And, of course, we're in a recession right now, so anything that helps people save money or make money or lower their stress level is going to be a really good story right now. Absolutely. Um, do you have examples of uh, any other examples of some of your collective e-experts who have been able to kind of establish themselves out there in the press as go-to spokespeople? Oh, yeah, of course. You know, I feel like, well, I always say because when they come to us, the first thing I'm going to say to them is you really, really have to turn yourself into an expert because a product alone will not always survive. I mean, it will survive, but will not always be a viable story. I mean, it may if you've got one of those wowza products, but everything ebbs and flows because fashion trends change and price points change. And for instance, we're in a recession right now, so expensive products are harder to get on television. So, for instance, I'm sure, Pam, you're familiar with Galia, who does down-to-earth finance and has a booklet of tips and a, you know, a kit of tips on finance. So now she's going on programs and talking about tips for saving money, tips for managing money. Um, even our Collective E accountant right now has tips on accounting for small businesses. So everyone's job when they come to us is to turn their things into tips. One that I find very interesting, we have a member named Ann Maxfield, who has a company called It's All About Aging. Because right now this baby boomer generation is you know, getting older and people's parents are getting older and questions come up sort of, how do I take care of them? How do I take care of myself? How do I deal with all the important documents I need to be dealing with? All of these really interesting, important issues. So she not only has a website about this, and that's, that's her product, her service, but she's now going to start promoting herself on television and on the radio, and she's already been getting you know, blogs and websites who want to talk to her about these really essential tips on dealing with aging parents. And it's, 
it's been really interesting to me to read. So these people are putting themselves out there because they understand I need to be what we call it. We call it 360 degree PR. I need to tell my whole story. And that means my business story, my aha moment, my product story, my service story, my expert story. It's like a wheel that's always turning. And that ensures that you'll always have something to talk about. Um, if you do that, you're always going to be visible because for a brand to stick, you have to be you know, visible and seen a lot of times. And the more you share those stories with people, the more the media gets to know you and your consumers get to know you. And it's, it's key to make sure that your story is unique and your voice is unique. I mean, I think one of the things, one of the mistakes that I see people making is trying to be an expert in something that's too general or too competitive and, you know, finding it difficult to stand out in the, uh, in the field of motherhood experts without having a specific angle on motherhood, for example. It's really true. You have to be true to yourself. I think, you know, in entrepreneurship, to really make it, it's a journey. You know, entrepreneurship is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And same with your PR campaign. And the first most essential thing is you have to be true to yourself and your vision. Um, they always say, you know, you can't take the visionary out of the vision and stick it somewhere else. You have to be true to your own expertise. And if you're trying to be an expert on everything, first of all, the media is not going to want to talk to you. And then you're spreading yourself too thin. You don't have a message people can really say, oh, you know, we all know Pam talks about escaping from corporate America. It's, it's synonymous with who you are. So you want to be known as that person. And even if it doesn't happen overnight, I say every month you should have something new and exciting to share with the media. And if you can't think of something, you need to start creating new things every month, whether you're doing an event or you're speaking at the Junior League or you're speaking at the Chamber of Commerce or you're doing a big giveaway online. So you're making yourself relevant every month. It's also giving them something unique to remember you by. So in the same way, if you're an expert, every month have some expert tips you're sharing, but keep them in the same vein of what your expertise really is in or you're going to dilute your message. So, you know, staying true to yourself, even when it takes a little bit longer, the reward is always so much greater. And when you have passion for something and really understand it, then you're a true expert in that. That's the best way. You're, that's how people are going to connect with you, your honest story and not one you borrowed from someone else or you're trying to make your story. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's really good advice. Thank you. I think, you know, when you do, like we all know, when you do what you love and you believe you're meant to do and you're good at, and you're going to be doing that and it's going to help somebody, no matter what it is, you know, fashion isn't frivolous. Fashion can change the way people think on the inside and out. So you do fashion and you do what you're supposed to do with it. I'll, I have to share one beautiful story. We work with a woman named Jordan Silver, and she works with a company. She runs a company called AG Apparel. They make adaptive clothing for women who are, you know, able-bodied and disabled, and they, they can adjust, and you can be fashionable. Even if you're in a wheelchair, you have to wear different medical, you know, products underneath your clothes. So she's an example of a fashion line, but she was true to her passion. She saw her aunt who had a chronic illness, and she had to lay down all day, but she didn't want to, you know, wear hospital gowns all day. So Jordan created a line of clothing that was adaptable. And now she's an expert and a speaker on adaptable clothing and adaptable fashion and working with people with disabilities. And it's so inspiring. And she's stuck to what her mission was. You know, Jordan's been in O Magazine. She's been speaking all over the country. So it's a story of, you know, no matter what your passion is or what you believe you were put here to work on, you stick to that and you stick to your message and people will want to hear your story and see your product. And she's done this, by the way, without a publicist. All these people doing it on their own, and that's what's exciting. Um, yes, they're members, and they've used the site in the community, but they've used each other and just propelled themselves forward and worked hard because at the end of the day, 
you know, hard work and perseverance and patience are the real keys to your success here. And, and the great thing is the harder that you work and the more you establish relationships, so speaking from my personal experience, the more you end up getting contacted by the press. So that once you've been out there, you've appeared, you know, your work starts to build momentum. So it's not oh, you know, totally hard, but it becomes easier. <laughs> oh, we, you know, you see so in one place and then you see them in another place. And then the media, the media reads the same magazines and watches the same shows we're watching. So they're going to see your story, you know. Know Me Baby, this car seat cover, has been Twittering and social, you know, Facebooking and making blog appearances and bigger and bigger articles, and then all of a sudden, CBS, and then, you know, this morning's show. So she's, it just starts to build. They build off each other, and it also gives you that energy to keep going. Yeah. So what about those of us who are outside of New York? And, and I know that when you're in New York, uh, you know, that really is such a media center, um, is is it as beneficial to be on, you know, 10 Connect in Tampa? Oh, sure. You know, I think that, um, and you know, for my own clients, I have only one client in New York. All my clients go everywhere from Calgary to San Diego for Red Branch PR. So, And I know they're my clients, clearly, but they're everywhere, and they've worked themselves before they came to me. And just like that in Collective E, whether you're at El Paso, Los Angeles, Canada, we've got them everywhere. And it doesn't matter where you start because the beautiful thing is these days we're an information age. You can work from anywhere. And um, whether you want to get your local TV, I think local TV is essential for a couple of reasons. First of all, you can build that reel. You can build that expertise on camera. So when you want to pitch yourself to the Oprah Winfrey Show or the Today Show, they're gonna, the first thing they're going to say to you is, let me see your reel. Let me see you on TV before. Um, every client I've ever booked or collective e-member we've ever booked on television, they had to have a reel. They had to show their expertise. So local TV is a great stomping ground, just like an actress might start out in community theater. You need to start there. And also it's going to be an easier way to practice your pitching. And that, that story is going to allow you to propel yourself to a bigger story and a bigger story. And then if you are still in Tampa or you know San Diego or you know Albany, New York, what you can then do is start reaching out to the national media because the magazines and the television and the radio shows and the blogs, all of them that are national shows and you know network shows, you can pitch them from anywhere. You can find their email address and send them your story from anywhere or pick up the phone and call them. So these days it's fantastic. No matter where you are, there's still hope. And um, those contacts are also easy to find. You know, If you're in Collective E, you can pull them off online from our website. Or if you're not a member, you can go to a magazine and look at the masthead and figure out which editor you need to pitch. And the masthead is just in the beginning of the magazine, a list of all the editors. So you can find out who the best person is to share your story with and create a really snappy, quick pitch. Don't send a paragraph. No one's going to read it. And then pursue them that way. So no matter where you are, PR, I think like you were saying, it's essential. It's less expensive than advertising, and you can do it from anywhere. Well, that that again is is just very very practical. And uh, you know, my my first TV opportunity was actually Fox Business Money for Breakfast, and they had wow. a local uh, TV station here. And unfortunately, they couldn't get the video feed to work, so I was just oh, on no. audio. But uh, I, I'm hoping that won't be the last call. Well, oh no! <laughs> I know. But I think once you do it, it's also it's just great for your business too. And you you see that, and you keep doing it. And I think. Um, it's always good to start small and go big just for everyone, just for the practice sake of it all. Well, you know, the funny thing yeah. is it, it actually was one of the things that spurred me to do this radio show because I had not been on TV or radio, and that same week I was asked to be on Blog Talk Radio twice. So Wow! Anyway, so here I am 100 shows later. 
Well, listen. That's a nice story. I like that. Yeah. Well, listen, we are out of time, Sabina, but it has been really great. And, Pamela, uh, I hope you have a great week. And I will talk to you next week. Well, it was a pleasure. And, you know, we look forward to seeing everyone. If they have any questions, they can check us out at collective-e.com or at redbranchpr.com, and we'll be happy to answer any questions they have there. Okay, terrific. Well, you guys have a great day. You too. Have a great day. Okay. Bye-bye. For more information about Solutions Live, see www.solutionslive.blogspot.com. That's Solutions with a Z. I trust that today's show provided you with a bit of innovation and some inspiration. Join us again on Thursday from 10 until noon for the personal side of professional life. Go out and begin to leave your legacy today. of this world.